The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2015th SENT Conference. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. I was talking to think about business and the way you created us with the inward desire to create and produce and to care for others. And I ask Lord that you would help the teaching of your word become clear on this topic of business tonight as we think about it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have ever worked for a business? Everybody. Just let me remind you of some quick obvious facts. Everything you eat comes from business, has been produced by business, sold by business, trucked by business, produced by business. Even if you grow things in your garden, you got the seeds from business, probably. Every book you read has been produced by business. Every bus you ride, every car you drive was built by business. Every apartment you live in or dorm or every house you live in was built by business. Every church building you meet in, including this one, was built by business. The lights were built by business. The microphone and sound system all built by business. Every road you drive on is built by business, paid for by taxes, but it's private contractors who build the roads. So business is just part of everything that happens in our lives. And um, I think when I hear people say I work in such and such a business and they're a Christian, they're thinking, well, I'm sort of not doing the best thing. I'm not being a minister, a pastor, a missionary. I'm doing, I'm working in business. Um, and, but I, but I do give to the Lord's work and I witness to people at work. And that's the extent of how people think of the goodness of business. And I want to say, wait a minute, there's a much more positive view of business in itself. Not just how much money you give away, not just how much witness you do to other people within the business, but the activities of business themselves, I think were, um, I think God had them in mind when he created Adam and Eve and told them to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And I think that the activities of business show unique, God-given abilities to the human race, which set us apart from the animal kingdom in many ways. So let me talk about this. The goal tonight is to say that, is to show you a picture where business is God's wonderful means of doing good, people doing good for each other throughout the earth, and that we can be thankful for every time we interact with a business. And if you end up working for a business, or you are now working for a business, I want you to be able to say, thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to serve other people and to love my neighbor as myself for the work that I do in this business. So let me uh, <clears throat> let me start by saying, when I started to think about business, I thought, um, because somebody named Ted Yamamori was setting up a conference in Virginia on business as mission, which is what you're doing here. And he said, Wayne, will you speak on the goodness of business in itself? And I thought, okay, now I've got to figure out what is business. 
So I sat down and thought, what are the basic components that make up business? Well, you have to own something to be able to have a business. You have to produce things, either goods or services. You have to hire people. You have to have buying and selling, and that's commercial transaction. You have to make a profit. You have to use money. You're going to deal with inequalities of possessions. You're going to deal with competition, and you probably deal with borrowing and lending. So those nine things, ownership, productivity, employment, commercial transactions, buying and selling, Profit, money, inequality, competition, and borrowing and lending. I want to go through those nine things in about 35 minutes and say every one of them is not just morally neutral and they're not morally evil. They're morally good in themselves and pleasing to God. And we should take much more delight in them, but they can all be used in evil ways and used for sinful purposes. So that's, that's the overview. So, nine things. First one is ownership, owning possessions. <clears throat> is owning possessions just selfishness, just materialism? Does it mean a lower level of spirituality when you have possessions? Are they just things that are designed to turn our hearts away from God? I don't think so. Owning possessions, I think, is good in itself, and it provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but any temptations to sin. And the reason I think that is, you go back to the um, Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and the Eighth Commandment in Exodus 20:15 is, you shall not steal. That assumes that people own things. I shouldn't. Ah, is that your computer? That's a MacBook. I don't have a MacBook. <laughs> a nice one too. <laughs> okay, so I shouldn't steal the computer because it belongs to Josh. It doesn't belong to me. The command you shall not steal. In the Old Testament, don't steal somebody's ox or donkey or sheep. Now don't steal somebody's car or computer. It assumes that there's ownership. If somebody owns something and somebody else doesn't own things. And the Old Testament had other verses that assumed ownership of property. There were laws about if you steal a sheep, then you had to repay four sheep if you were caught. Or if you lit a fire and it burned your neighbor's grain field down, then you had to repay the grain field to be destroyed. There's ownership of property that's assumed. In the year of Jubilee, it said every one of you shall return to his property. So there was land that was owned too. And there were commands against moving the landmark which make the boundary line between me and my neighbor, and if I move the landmark over toward him a little farther, I just acquired some of his land, and there's a command to do not to do that. That's stealing land. So there's a there's an assumption of private ownership of property that sets the Bible in distinction from communism. Because Karl Marx said in the Communist Manifesto, the essential doctrine of the communists may be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. But I think that is the most dehumanizing economic system ever devised by the human race, because it takes away this God-given idea of ownership of property. Now, when God establishes a system of ownership, I'm going to talk about this more Saturday night and Sunday morning service at Bethlehem. 
when he establishes a system of ownership of property, then all of a sudden you realize if God defines the property as belonging to me, then he expects me to do something with it. Owning property implies stewardship and accountability to God. And that, I think, implies that there will be creativity by human beings on the earth so that when God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, the Hebrew word translated subdue, kavash, means to make useful products from the earth. And I think God wanted Adam and Eve to make those things from the earth. I'll talk about that more in the second point. But this is why careers in business are so important because much human development of the resources of the earth and much of human flourishing comes through ownership of property in business. When I talk about ownership of property and private property, some people will think, wait a minute, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, doesn't it say they had all things in common? It does. But isn't that an early communism? No, it's not early communism because it was not compelled by the government. It was voluntary. And because people still continued to own things, including houses. Greet Aquila and Prisca and the church in their house. We get a lot of verses like that. So early Christians were meeting in various people's houses, and people still owned houses. And Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, after they had lied about the property, well, Ananias first and then Sapphira, that they had sold, he said, well, it remained unsold, was it not your own? And when it was sold, um, was it not yours to dispose of the money that you got from it? You didn't have a requirement to give. It was voluntary. It was a wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts and implying a lot of generosity, but it wasn't early communism. So that's that first thing. Owning possession is good in itself. Though there are distortions possible. You can have selfishness and greed and misuse of resources and failures to achieve things like that. But we shouldn't let the abuse of ownership distracts us from the good of ownership that God establishes. Number two, productivity. Producing goods and services is good in itself and provides many opportunities for glorifying God and many temptations to sin. So producing goods and services from the earth. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Having dominion over the earth, subduing the earth, means that God imagined or planned or foresaw that Adam and Eve would create first simple structures to live in and perhaps simple means of transportation like carts or wagons, and then more complex buildings and other kinds of transportation. And I think ultimately subduing the earth means building modern houses and cars and MacBooks and cell phones and airplanes. When human beings make things, they create wealth that did not exist in the world before. So, there's a store near our home in Scottsdale, Arizona, that sells these little plastic discs. Probably worth about five cents worth of plastic. And I don't know what to do with it. If I smoke, it would be a little ashtray, but I don't smoke and so an interesting plastic disc. But there's a man in this shop who took this disc, or one just like it, and put it into a machine. And when it came out the other end, it was a $100 lens for my glasses. 
They put another one in. Here's another hundred dollars in some of my glasses. Five cents worth of plastic becomes a hundred dollars worth of glasses lens. Now that's one hundred dollars of value that never existed in the whole history of the world before. Is that is that making sense? He created prosperity by making a product that was useful to a human being and in need. And it's and it's a really my brother's an optometrist from White Bear Lake and I got an eye exam yesterday. But he's very careful and so I have bifocals that I can read the fine print and I can see in distance because the glasses are adjusted exactly correctly. So it creates wealth that didn't exist before. Same thing happens when uh, a woman in a poor country buys a length of cloth for $3 and sews it into a shirt that she sells in the market for $13. She's added $10 worth of prosperity to her nation, or $10 worth of wealth that didn't exist before. That's how human beings create prosperity, by creating products from the resources of the earth. Now, animals don't do that. They're incapable of creating more value than is in the raw materials. They can't make glasses or cars or computers or anything like that. This is a, a, an amazing ability that sets us apart from the animal kingdom. And that's why I'm saying that productivity creates wealth that didn't exist before. And I think God wants us to do that and take delight in it because we are imitating his creativity. And after God created, he took delight in the creation that he had made. He saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And I think God wants us to take delight in the resources of the earth and thank him for them as they're made into valuable things for us. So, what God did was put in the human heart a desire to understand and create from the world, and that desire to understand and create is unlimited. Rabbits and squirrels and birds and deer are content to live in the same kind of homes and eat the same kind of food for thousands of generations. But human beings have an innate desire to explore, to discover, to understand, to invent, to create, to produce, and to enjoy the products that can be made from the earth. This innate human drive to subdue the earth has never been satisfied through the history of mankind because God created us not merely to survive on the earth, but to flourish. And businesses make that happen. I don't think this desire to flourish and create useful products from the earth is just sinful materialism. I think it's a God-given desire to be creative. God created us with limited needs. If you think about it, it's just to live, you need food, clothing, and shelter. And with that, you can, you can live in a prison camp or on a desert island. You can survive limited needs, but he created us with unlimited wants for new and better products. I don't mean unlimited wants for a thousand pairs of shoes or something like that, which is wasteful, but I mean unlimited wants for new things that didn't exist before. So I live quite happily without a cell phone for about 40 years of my life. I didn't know I wanted one. 
<clears throat> and I remember when I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, in Deerfield, Illinois, for 20 years. And I remember the first time a student brought a cell phone into the classroom. And I thought, a student having a cell phone? This is wasteful. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. He was a staff member at a fairly prosperous church. He maybe might remember if I mentioned it. And, and he had a phone. And now everybody has cell phones. So I was in Uganda in October. And this, I couldn't use examples of stealing for their, they, they don't have cars, they don't have scooters. I thought of these bicycles, they don't have bicycles. What do they have? They have mobile phones. So, but just think of this. <clears throat> the human race existed for thousands of years not knowing it wanted electric lights. In the early 1900s, all of a sudden houses began to get electric lights. And plastic water bottles, recent gas furnaces, air conditioners. Only in the 1950s did air conditioners become economically feasible for homes. Automobiles, computers, airplane travel. For thousands of years, human beings did not know they wanted those things because nobody knew they could be made. But human achievement continued to progress, and human beings give more evidence of the glory of God our creation in the image of God, with inventions, we demonstrate creativity. My water bottle is leaking all over the podium. Excuse me, it's not as wonderful as an invention as I thought it was. <laughs> this is Costco. This is Kirkland water. Shame on Costco. Maybe user error, because I didn't put the top on tight enough. But now I have a damaged manuscript. Never mind. <laughs> so in creating and using these things, we progress and show the glory of our creation in the image of God. With inventions, human beings demonstrate creativity, which honors God because he's a creator. Demonstrate wisdom, imitating God's wisdom, knowledge, skill, use of resources, care for others. Thanks, Nick. I think we're safe. Um, plants and animals show a measure of God's glory by surviving and repeating the same activities for thousands of years. And you can be amazed at a plant and say, thank you, God, for making such a beautiful plant. But human beings glorify God by achieving more than survival. We glorify God by understanding and ruling over the creation and producing more and more wonderful goods from it for our enjoyment and with thanksgiving to God who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be received, rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer, First Timothy 4.4. 4. So this command you shall not steal, when viewed in the context of the Bible's teaching on stewardship and creativity, encourages us to achieve much and to flourish on the earth. Now, whatever college subject you are majoring in, you can contribute to human flourishing on the earth with God's favor and blessing. That's that's producing goods and services. Okay. Employment. Hiring people or working for people. Again, Marxism says if you hire people and make a profit from their labor, that's exploiting them. That's unfair, morally wrong. I don't think the Bible views hiring people and working for people that way. 
Jesus says the laborer deserves his wages. In Colossians 4, 1, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. So I think Paul is assuming that people will work for one another and that they will be compensated. In the first century, bondservants had property rights. They could save, they could own their own property. They could save enough to earn their own freedom usually by about age 30. And masters were to treat them and compensate them fairly. So when you work for somebody, I work for Phoenix Seminary. Every, twice a month, they pay me. So uh, here's what happens. When I work for Phoenix Seminary, they seem to like it, and they think that I'm doing good for them. They're happy when I teach classes. But when they pay me, I like it. Because <laughs> they're doing good for me. Now, isn't that something? I work for them, I'm doing good for them. They work, they pay me, they're doing good for me. I'm happier after they pay me, they're happier after I do the work. So, working for your boss or your company is a way of both of you loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said you're supposed to do. You're doing good for each other and both people benefit. Is that making sense? So I want to transform the way people think about work. Oh, do I have to go to work as a drudgery? No, I get a chance to do good for my employer who's doing good for other people by making products that are useful and bring joy and happiness to them. And my employer is doing good for me. Thank you, employer, for paying me. It's mutually beneficial. Buying and selling. That's number four. So number one was ownership. Two was productivity. Three, employment. Four, buying and selling. I was in Albania oh, five, six years ago, speaking on business and economic kind of things. And one after another, people in Albania, which is a former communist country, it's the first country north of Greece, but it was under communist rule for many years. And really, the fabric of society frayed so badly. But they said to me, one after another, everybody in business is just ripping us off. And they don't give us good products, and they don't let us, they don't treat us fairly. And it was just a negative view of buying and selling that they were just afraid they were going to be taken advantage of. But I think that we should think of buying and selling in a much different way. There is a bakery near our house called Wildflower Bread Company, and they bake loaves of bread that I really like. And so Margaret goes and buys these loaves of bread and goes, me this bread and it's really good. Now here, let's just assume that it costs him $3 to make a loaf of bread. But the loaf of bread costs $6. So, if they, they bake 40 loaves of bread, no, they bake 100 loaves of bread at 4 in the morning before anybody comes in. And then they got the bread sitting there and it costs them $3 a loaf to sell and they're selling it for 6 I come in and I have $6 in my hand. Now what's happening? They are thinking, I want the $6 more than I want this loaf of bread. The bread's going to get stale. And they can't sell it. So they'll be thinking they're better off when I give them the $6. But I'm thinking, I want that bread more than I want this $6. So if they'll just give me the bread for the $6, I'll be better off. I'll be happier. So we trade. I trade money for bread. They are happier. They're better off. I'm happier. I'm better off. Both parties benefit. 
Buying and selling is another way of doing good for one another. Buying and selling is a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. Didn't Jesus say you should love your neighbor as yourself? I don't think people think of buying and selling that way very often. But it is. It's a voluntary transaction and both parties are informed. Reasonably well informed. They're both better off after the transaction is done. Okay? Are you getting to like business better? I think it's a, it's a wonderful ability that God has given us. All right. This idea that a, a good deal is one that benefits both parties transforms business transactions, and it's a joy to buy and sell from one another. Next number, five, profit. Profit. And I, I majored in economics as an undergraduate, and profit was almost a swear word on campus. I don't know why, there's just an incipient socialism and Marxism floating in the intellectual atmosphere or something. But as I've come to think about profit, profit is good in itself and it provides many opportunities for glorifying God. Look, think about the loaf of bread. The ingredients, the flour, the water, the eggs, whatever else you put in bread yeast, cost three dollars. They sold the loaf of bread for six dollars. $3 profit. That measures how much good they did for society. Doesn't it? $3 worth of ingredients became valued at $6. They did $3 worth of good because I think it's worth $6. I paid $6 for it. So their profit measures the amount of good they did for society. Yes, Nick is following. I didn't get some point this thing. Businesses have to make a profit to stay in business. Profit measures how much good people think you are doing for them. Profit is like a red light and a green light signal. If if the baker is making a profit, the baker thinks I'm going to go on making that bread because people like it. I'm doing good for them. It signals him to go on making it. If he bakes a new kind of bread and nobody buys it, and he loses money on it and throws it away, he's losing money, he's loss of profit. That's a red light, that's a signal, don't make that kind of bread anymore. And all the new companies and new startups that try to produce new products, a lot of them fail because they're not meeting consumer needs, but the ones that meet needs best are the ones that make a profit. And they survive. Profit attracts capital toward the businesses that are best at helping other people. So now, I don't know, what do you think of Bill Gates? Well, his, you know, every day the stock market goes up and down and he's worth a few billion less than one. But $74 billion or something like that, and a billion is an unbelievable amount of money. A million, if you're a millionaire, you think you're rich, he's a millionaire a thousand times over to be a billionaire and then 74 times that. It's <laughs> a lot of money. But you know what? I use Microsoft Word. I use Windows. And so does the whole world. So I think I'm happy for his $74 billion. I think it means that he's brought at least $74 billion worth of good to the world. Because that's how much more people have paid for his products than cost him to make them. 
the profit is a measure of how much good you do for others in terms of at least how what they're willing to pay for it. Now, um, I have stopped doing Bible verses here. Just a minute. Buying and selling. I did have a verse. Leviticus 25.14 If you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. That is, you don't cheat each other. You don't have deceptive products. You don't lie about your product. You don't say the bread is fresh when it was two days old. That kind of thing. But when God commands you shall not wrong one another when you make a sale or buy, he's implying that you can do this in a morally good way. And profit. Luke 19.16 Lord, your or the first servant came before him saying, Lord, your mina or your pound has made ten minas more at the unit of currency. And the master who represents Jesus said in Luke 19.17, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So the servant whose mina, the unit of currency, made ten more, he made a thousand percent profit, he was commended by the master for making that profit. It seems to view profit in a positive light. And in Proverbs 31, the godly wife perceives that her merchandise is profitable, Proverbs 31.18. And the Hebrew word means about what we mean by profit. It makes her money. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She's making things and selling them in the market and earning a profit. And that's commended in Proverbs 31.18. So I think profit is a morally good thing. It can be misused, yes. People can set their hearts too much on money and too much on profit, and they can cheat people and try to make a profit by shortcuts, but in the long run, but the distortion of profit shouldn't make us think that profit in itself is evil. I think it's a good thing. Money. <clears throat> Number six, money. Money is good in itself <clears throat> and provides opportunities for glorifying God but many temptations to sin. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Um... And Haggai 2.8 is interesting. God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He made the silver, he made the gold in the earth, and I think he knew that people would use it as a medium of exchange. But it's his. If it were evil, I don't think he'd say that he owns it. I thought he might. That's a different I got that down a sentence I didn't want to complete. Erase, forget that sentence. God put silver and gold in the earth knowing, I think, that it would be used as a medium of exchange by human beings. So money is a powerful temptation that can be used for evil, but it's not evil in itself, because just think for a minute if we didn't have money. Now, a lot of this material is coming from a little book I wrote called Business for the Glory of God. And this book is sold by Crossway for $15.99, $16. Okay? If we didn't have any money in the world, <clears throat> Margaret and I could go to the grocery store and load up a grocery cart full of groceries and say to the manager of the grocery store, will you take a book for these groceries? We could barter. And you know, if he was feeling in a generous mood, he might say, well, I'll take one book for a few groceries, but is a book worth a loaf of bread and a dozen eggs, or is it worth a gallon of milk, or is it worth five pounds of steak? I don't know. How to stop you tell? And he might give us some food the first time, but if I came back next week and said, now, can I give you more books for those groceries again? He said, no, I really didn't like the book the first time. 
So bartering is horribly inefficient. If we didn't have money and we were reduced to bartering, you'd probably be subsistence level living. You'd be raising your own vegetables and milking your own cows and maybe trading a few eggs with the neighbor for something else. But it would be basically subsistence level living for the whole human race. But now if there's money, I can sell Josh this book for $16. I take $16 to the grocery store and I say to the grocery, will you buy it? Take this for $16 with groceries. He said, sure. Because money stores value. And it's a measure of value across millions of commodities. So now, now that's $20. And it's $20 no matter, in fact, I can go any place in the world and spend this $20. I might have to exchange it for other currency, but I can still, it's a, it's a store, it stores value until I can, until I can purchase something else with it. And so I think money is a good thing in itself. It enables the human race to have commercial transactions and compare prices across commodities over millions of goods. And so it's, it's a good thing in itself. Now it provides many opportunities for sin because it's so powerful and it can be misused. And loving money is the root of all kinds of evil, says Paul in First Timothy 6.10. But money in itself is good, I think. Morally good, not just neutral. Okay, number seven, inequality of possessions. Inequality of possessions is good in itself and provides many opportunities for glorifying God but also many temptations to sin. And some kinds of inequalities are wrong in themselves. So we get the parable of the talents, we get the parable of the minors. In Luke 19, 17, Jesus says, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful over a little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And a second came saying, Lord, your miner has made five minors more. And he said, You will be over five cities. So this person is over ten cities, this person is over five cities. In the age to come, after final judgment, there is differences of stewardship. Some people have larger stewardship and smaller stewardship. In other words, there's inequality of stewardship in the age to come, for all eternity. So God isn't going to make us all equal. There are degrees of reward in heaven. Even among the angels, there are angels and archangels. So never in history, never in the Bible, is there any teaching that God, God's goal is equality of possession. Um, and in a world where there is fairness in compensation, I think we recognize that some people have incredible athletic skills and they I think you, you may think pay is excessive, but you still think they deserve compensation more than people who don't have those athletic skills. And some people have incredible musical skills and they're paid for that, and scientific and invention, invention skills, and they're paid for that. And some people just work harder than others. And if they're rewarded for their labor, they're going to be, there's going to be inequality. And then people have different personalities and different proclivities and tendencies money. And um, Margaret and I have three sons. And from a young age, if 
if they all had five dollars, you know, one would save it, one would spend it right away, and they would, they would, you know, they wouldn't be equal by the end of the day or two. So um, inequality of possessions, I think, is good in itself because it is a reflection of reward according to the work that one does and the skill and talent that one has. However, there's some inequality that the Bible wants us to overcome, and that is if others are in need or are in poverty, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? First John 3, 17. So we should help those who are poor. And uh, there are evils carried out by rich persons who withheld their wages unfairly in James 5, and those are evils, but that doesn't mean that inequality is wrong in itself. And you know, if you think about it, if I drive about 10 miles from my home, there's a Walmart on the intersection of Highway 101 and Chaparral in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And people have said to me that one of the Walton brothers shops at that Walmart. Do you know who the Walton brothers are? They own Walmart. And there are four of them, and they have, they're worth about $20 billion each, so the four together are worth more than Bill Gates. Now, <laughs> I've never seen this Walton brother at Walmart. <clears throat> um, but, so what? It doesn't bother me that he's got $20 billion, does it? It's not, what I care about is, is Phoenix Seminary paying me, and can I buy groceries and put gas in the car? I mean, that's, if he's got $20 billion, it doesn't, the inequality in that sense doesn't bother me. Does it, should it bother you? Well, I just, well, we can, we can ask about that for the Q&A session. And so, at this point, I want to put a, just a, a, a little parenthesis. I'm supposed to be done at 7.30, but I can go another five minutes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Oh. I didn't get a response. Okay. <laughs> okay. <coughs> What's well, in here? Well, no, the Walton story. Um, <clears throat> so, my first teaching job was at Bethel College, actually, in 1977 to 81. And John Piper and I were teaching together in the biblical and theological studies department. We became friends. So it's fine. And in 1977, the year I started teaching, a book came out called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger by Ron Seidel. Anybody familiar with that book at all? No, but it's affected every single one of you, even though you haven't read it. Ron Seidel says, <clears throat> inequality in the world is basically an evil thing. And the way to overcome it is Christians should become more generous. So I'm going to take two minutes and critique Ron Seidel. Because you've absorbed his views even if you don't, I think you have. It's sold, sold 400,000 copies uh, and been through five editions. Ron Sider thinks, he's a professor at Eastern College in Pennsylvania. He thinks the primary solution to poverty in the world is sharing. But I think, I think he's wrong. I think it should be seen as producing is the primary solution to poverty. He thinks the primary solution is government control rather than more freedom. He sees the primary problem in the world is that too many people are wealthy rather than too many people are poor. The problem isn't inequality. The problem is poverty. 
saying the problem is inequality is like saying, you know, there are too many sick people, there's too much problem with sickness in the world, and there are too many healthy people, there's too much distinction between sick people and healthy people. We should overcome that distinction and have some of the healthy people become more sick so that there's more equality in health. Now, the problem isn't inequality in health, the problem is some people are sick and they need to be well. And so the problem isn't wealth, the problem is poverty. Um, Cider sees the primary problem as wealth rather than government power and restrictions on the free market and wrong cultural values. Cider still leaves the reader with the impression that prosperity is mostly harmful, though it does some good, he says. Prosperity is mostly harmful for nations and individuals, and corporations are mostly harmful. He wrongly assumes scarcity of natural resources, and he focuses on how much the rich nations consume rather than how much they produce. He complains that the United States has only 4% of the world's population and consumes 25% of the world's resources. Fails to mention that the United States produces 25% of the world's economic wealth. Cider wrongly advocates more foreign aid to solve the problem of poverty rather than less foreign aid. He still names the wrong culprits. He fails to blame corrupt rulers in poor countries and blames wealthy people and corporations in rich countries for poverty. He blames Christians who don't share enough. He wrongly sees inequality as a major problem rather than poverty. He wrongly portrays the market economy as mostly unfair and harmful to the environment and to families and to culture. He wrongly sees the solution as increased government regulation rather than increased freedom. He wrongly sees enjoyment of the world's resources as mostly evil and harmful rather than good. So, Ron Sider's book, which had an immense, in you can hear in some of those sentences, the perspective that he has. But in his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, the subtitle is Moving from Affluence to Generosity. And he sees the problem as affluence. I don't. I think the problem is poverty. And the solution is generosity. I don't. I think the solution is productivity. So anyway, that's a critique of Cider and his view of inequality. Number eight, competition. And Paul, people can ask about that if they want to respond. Competition is good in itself and provides many opportunities for glorifying God with many temptations to sin. You see athletic imagery used by Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9.24. You do not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Paul uses his work for the gospel as as something that he sees in terms of running a race and competing to achieve a prize. <clears throat> I don't think he sees competition as a negative thing. He tries to achieve more than the other apostles and spurred on in his effort. Um, I had a there was an article in USA Today about a year ago about the airline lost baggage statistics and. American and Delta and uh, U, uh, U.S. Airways at that time and Southwest and they had all these, a lot of these airlines and, and right down at the bottom in terms of lost baggage was Delta. So they called the Vice President Delta and asked for a comment. And the Vice President Delta said, we're going to change those statistics next year. We've sent secretly costumed workers 
to the baggage handling facilities for American and Southwest and United. And we're going to cut their conveyor belts and put sand in their, in the wheels of their conveyor belts. And we're going to mislabel their tags. So instead of going to Toledo, they go to Tokyo and things like that. <clears throat> Is that what he said? No. He said, we're re-examining our system and streamlining it and, and doing new information processing for baggage handling, and we're going to get this problem solved. In other words, competition spurred Delta to try to do better, not to try to destroy the other company. Does that make sense? So competition is, I think, something that God put in the human race to enable us to try to challenge each other and do better by there was a friend of mine when we lived in um, in Illinois who uh, was the head of a company that made postage, no, mail sorting machines where they'd sort letters at certain thousands per minute or something like that. And he said his engineers told him that this was the very fastest and quietest that any machine could ever be made to sort mail. And then he heard that in uh, another suburb in Illinois, they had bought a German postage mail processing machine. And he took, he didn't say anything, he just said to his engineers, today we're going on a field trip. And he went and he showed him this machine and it was making thousands of more sorts per minute than his was, and it was quieter. And they were saying it couldn't be done. And they watched it with open mouths and they said, we've got to get back to work. Competition spurs people on to do better. And it also helps you decide what career to go into, doesn't it? Because you try a certain subject and you don't do well at it and you say, oh, I'm going to try something else. And you try another subject and you like it and you do well at it. We had a painter at our house one time who wasn't very good and he lasted a day. And I invited him not to come back the next day. I was helping him find another occupation where he would do well. <coughs> the, uh, the, <laughs> the economic system of the world is so diverse and so gigantic that there is something that everybody can do well and fit into. Competition enables that. Borrowing and lending are good in themselves. This is the last one, and I'm going to be done. And provide many opportunities for glorifying God, but many temptations to sin. Um, Jesus says in Luke 19 in the parable, why did you not put my money in the bank and in my coming and my have collected it with interest? There are some commands in the Bible against collecting interest on loans, but they're mainly geared at not taking advantage of people's poverty and distress and their hardship. And I don't think the Bible argues against taking interest on loans in general. And But more than that, I want to say something. I have one car and sits in the garage in Arizona. But when I landed at the airport here in Minneapolis, I had another car. And a few weeks ago, I was in Chicago, and I had another car. And next week, and next month, I'm going to Atlanta, and I've got another car there. I've got thousands of cars all over the world because I just go to a car rental agency, and they, they lend me a car for a certain amount of pay. So what happens is this idea of borrowing and lending multiplies the usefulness of the resources of the earth. And actually, I only have one house, but I can stay in this uh, hotel room in any city I want to just by going and paying the hotel desk. So being able to use a car or a hotel room for a certain period of time by borrowing and lending 
multiplies the usefulness of the resources of the earth. And it's a God-given activity that I think is a good thing, too, a moral good thing. Now, all of these things God has built into the human race, the ability to take part in and to produce and do good for each other with joy in our hearts. So now, business. Just going to read right from the end of this business book. I think that, before I say this, I think that the primary solution to world poverty is going to come through businesses. Because businesses produce the goods and services, and businesses produce the jobs that enable people to overcome poverty. But there's a hostility toward business in much of the world community. Because if people think business is evil, they'll hesitate to start a business. They won't feel freedom to enjoy working in business because it'll be tainted with a faint, faint cloud of guilt. Who can enjoy being an evil materialist who works with evil money to earn evil profits by exploiting labors and producing material goods that people feeds people's evil greed and enhance their evil pride and sustain their evil inequality of possessions and feed their evil competitiveness? Who would like to devote his life to such an evil pursuit as business? What government would ever want to establish laws and policies that would encourage such an evil thing as business? If business is evil, then why not tax it and regulate it until it can barely survive? And so with the attitude that business is fundamentally evil, business activity is hindered at every point and poverty persists. In fact, if the devil wanted to keep people created by God in his image in the wretched bondage of lifelong property, poverty, it's hard to think of a better way he could do it than to make people think that business is fundamentally evil so they would avoid entering into it or would oppose it at every turn. And so I think that a profoundly negative attitude to a business itself is ultimately a lie of the enemy. He wants to keep God's people from fulfilling his purposes. But what if, what if Christians could change their attitude toward business? What if attitudes toward business change in the ways I've been talking about? Who could resist being a God-pleasing subduer of the earth who uses materials from God's good creation and works with the God-given gift of money to earn morally good profits and shows love to his neighbor by giving them jobs and producing goods that overcome world poverty, goods that enable people to glorify God and enjoy his goodness and sustain just and fair differences in possessions and that encourage just and good and beneficial competition. What a great career that would be. What a great activity for governments to favor and encourage. What a solution to world poverty. What a way to give glory to God. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at clminneapolis.org.